Hello, Bernard. How are you? I've seen, I, I was a little alarmed when we both came on to realise that we basically had the coordinated dressing activity this morning, and I, I, I thought we either looked like we'd stepped out of somewhere, somewhere in Wanaka or um, Star, Star Trek. Yes, yes. I can't afford the icebreaker. I've got Kathmandu, uh, but um, you're right. My daughter, my daughter said to me about this particular sweater at one point. She said, "Dad, you've got so many beautiful clothes. Why are you just dressing like such a dad?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got the dad thing going on, definitely. Yeah. Um, not the Star Trek, because as we were saying earlier, they probably didn't have beards back then. And um, No, and they were a little snugger too. Yeah, I think so. Good good thing it's not yeah. too snug. Lovely to see you, and um, plenty of uh, news around this week, uh, yeah. both here and overseas. And but I'd like to start with some self-congratulatory numbers. Um, just this week, uh, the Kaka's uh, total subscriber list of free and paying subscribers went through 10,000. Good Lord. So just over a year after we launched the paying section of the site, we went through uh, 10,000. And um, that's much, much, much more than I ever expected we'd get. And um, incredibly um, positive and means that uh, our emails go out to 10,000 a day. And we know that the open rate is close to 50% for that. That's incredible. Yeah. And we're really How are you going to monetize that? Can we get some cigarette advertising into into your newsletter? Cigarette advertising? Yeah. Well, um, turns out People... the model of subscriptions and paying subscribers works, and I'm really appreciative. It's fantastic. So we can... Um, w but if someone wants to, you know, sponsor us or uh, with something that's nice... Uh, gin, Icebreaker. Ice, icebreaker. Ah, this is good. No, that's a bloody good idea, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Peter looks gorgeous today in his in his in his black and grey icebreaker. You know? Yes, but we do need. He can turn the heating down that he can no longer afford. Yeah, <laughs> we definitely need merch as well. I think um, so. That's that's good. Now, um, no, it's fantastic, Bernard. But also, the, uh, speaking of advertising, I, I don't know whether you've noticed this today. I have a subscription to the Herald, and uh, certainly online on 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 the phone, they've had the most disgusting pop-up ad this week which i so far as i can tell has no way of um closing it which is an ad for glenn morangi and there's something really ghastly when you see you know a glenn morangi ad with people clinking whiskey glasses at 10 in the morning <laughs> and i just thought it was really really odd very very odd poor ad um glenn says that william Riker, whoever that character was on star trek um had a beard ah. he was probably the sort of hippie you know monkeys type um character in star trek i don't remember him i wasn't a huge trekkie but you know no, i did like ohura of course uh, yes yes unfortunately she passed away a few months yes ago. yes well not literally yes yeah. exactly but the the actor, actress yes now bernard new zealand politics is quite interesting at the moment for all sorts of reasons when we've got a bit of a bit of a panoply of new zealand politics stories do you want to start with the local elections yeah i've been trying to focus <laughs> on the local elections for the last few weeks and i've done a couple of interviews one with efeso collins the um green labor endorsed candidate from mm -hmm. new zealand auckland and um, what I fear or expect is too strong a word because the polling is just not good enough for council elections, but just the tone of the candidates that have put themselves forward, the sort of issues that we've seen. And mm. if you look at how council elections can sometimes be 
reactions against the central government, and there's plenty of reasons for people to do that this time, with three waters and the densification orders from the government. I think we might be in this weekend for a wipeout of some of the centre-left green candidate mayor um, uh, characters in the current uh, councils, particularly in the, I suppose you could call it the councils that are furthest away from both Auckland and Wellington. Although Auckland, with Wayne Brown ahead in the polls, yeah, and, uh, it's very interesting that Wayne Brown thing because he, he is such a he behaves like such a dick. I mean, he's sort of the thinking man's Leo Malloy, really, isn't he? Thinking Mormon's Leo Malloy. You know, he I would much prefer Leo Malloy because Leo is at least entertaining. But I, I was appalled by his comments about Simon Simon Wilson. Um, and I think you did. You, did you just have Simon Wilson on as well? Yeah, I spoke to Simon. Are you are you trying to expand expand your readership into Auckland from from all the ten thousand people in Wellington who look at you? I know that there's a big demand for um, uh, coverage of what's happening in the Auckland elections because, in a way, where Auckland goes, New Zealand goes, and I think that there's a real chance of a, a stop in the momentum in Auckland. Auckland, over the last five or ten years, has really started to get its mojo going uh, after many years of stagnation. In what respect? Well, um, just think of the Wynyard Quarter all of the developments around the city rail link. I know it's been a real pain in the ass for those people trying to dodge all the cars. Yeah, I wonder if that's getting its mojo going from the mayor, or is it is it actually just that Auckland needs development and that Panuku thing has actually done, done quite a lot of that? It's a combination of the council having the heft, uh, now that it's a super city, and having some uh, uh, combined and consensus-style um, council uh, leadership with Phil Goff. Phil Goff had mm -hmm. a slightly difficult first year, but um, he, with a Labour mayor and a Labour government, you actually got quite a bit of extra investment. Although, to be fair, under John Key, finally the national government was starting to put some money into Auckland as well. Mm. The combination of all those things, plus the unitary plan in 2016, has given some Auck Auckland some momentum, and I think Auckland is the place that's leading the debate about mode shift and about actually getting things done to make it a, a more 15-minute city-style centralised thing. I mean, Auckland, mm. as, as, you, as you'll know, is a, it's a wonderful place to, to be when the sun is shining and um, there's uh, lots of people around, lots of activity. It is the economic hub of uh, this country, and particularly in that golden triangle, Auckland, Hamilton, Tauranga. Um, Jesus. That's where all the <laughs> this is the first time Hamilton's been described as being part of a golden triangle. Uh, Hamilton's yeah. hot. Hamilton's hot. And a um, lot of development in that in that area. Probably more than 60 to 70% of our economic growth in the next 10 years is going to come there. And Auckland, it's our international city. It's our growth city. And that's where the bulk of the infrastructure spending is going. Mm. The, the risk from a you know momentum point of view is that Wayne Brown, who is a combative politician, who alienated himself from the current government um, with his port study, who has alienated himself from previous uh, uh, councils, he was the far north district mayor and effectively was um, kicked out of there by the voters and reprimanded by the Auditor General. And as we've learnt in the election campaign, he was the chair of the District Health Board here in Auckland and was not loved at all in mm. how he managed that. So he is a combative, bull-in-a-china-shop uh, politician who says he likes to get things done, but actually 
in a council, you can't just be the boss ordering things from on high. You have to get all councillors on board and you have to get cooperation from the central government. Maybe you can, actually, Bernard. Maybe you can. You know, I, mean, I, I seriously did consider voting for him, but I, I found it very difficult after the Simon Wilson, Simon Wilson thing. Not that I did. I'm not even, I don't really know Simon, but I just thought that was just a really stupid, stupid set of things to say. And, and also when politicians don't just do the, the reasonable thing and say, God, I wish I hadn't been caught on mic saying that. You know, just cop to it would have yeah. been would have been much more intelligent. I don't know, but I, I just his whole stopping. You know, just the central government can't deliver on everything, as we're about to see with Three Waters and NZME and all these other uh, uh, and the um, sorry, the public media entity and all this other stuff. I'm just not convinced that that you don't need. Although actually, I've just had a sorry a hideous vision come to mind of John Banks. Oh yes. Who, if he'd had another go, we would have a motorway running. I think a motorway was it was a rail a motorway running across Hobson Hobson Bay. Yeah, no. You know, in a in a kind of nineteen sixties Cahill Expressway kind of uh, approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe maybe maybe, maybe you know, Wayne Brown does strike me as that kind of person who just sort of doesn't give a shit and wants to push on with the, with the bulldozers regardless. Although of course he wants all the bulldozers to stop what they're doing now, finish it, and then not do anything, which yeah, is a weird there is approach. Some real inconsistencies in his approach and also his um, comments about just sacking people uh, holus bolus. You cannot do that as a mayor of Auckland. Uh, and um, there has to be some consensual approach, otherwise it's uh, it's gonna go pear-shaped very quickly. I think a lot of um, people don't quite understand how different central government is from local government, in that central government has a cabinet-style process in which the Prime Minister is supreme as long as they have the support of the caucus, the cabinet is cabinet in confidence, and there is collective responsibility, unlike a council meeting where the mayor and the councillors debate issues in the open, their votes are recorded, they don't uh, vote along party lines, and if you're the mayor and you want to get something done, you have to get a majority of the council behind yeah. you, they have, to, they yeah. have to argue for it, and you can't tell them to do it. So. What's, what's the significance, Bernard, of this discussion around the turnout? Because I, I saw something today which suggested that, you know, the, the old citizens and ratepayers type people really love having a low turnout because it's just the people, people, you know, as you would say, homeowners and ratepayers who turn out. But it seems to me the media, uh, as far as I can tell, has done an incredible job at hosting and running... Um, you know, sessions with mayors, with these, with these prospective mayors all across the country. Yeah, there's um, been a lot more... You know, what's the democratic deficit thing going on there? Well, I think there is a lot more uh, attention paid by the media to it because we're all very conscious that there is a democratic deficit, that the voting rates are very low for local government, and also that over the last 20 years or so, the local coverage of um, local government has ebbed away as the as the local newspapers have declined in prominence and size. And there's a real conscious effort to put more effort back into covering local politics. Yeah, yeah. Council elections are the best place to start there. There's also more money. You know, the Public Interest Journalism Fund has funded um, local democracy journalism. In fact, uh, preceding that fund was the local democracy reporting project led by... Um, which is still going, yeah. Yeah, which has been, I think, very successful. Um, and I think also the shock of what happened in February, March, when the groundswell movement meshed with the anti-mandate, anti-vax movement into those horrible protests at Parliament, shocked a lot of people, and, and, and I think uh, there was a real effort to try and turn it around. Unfortunately, the voting figures so far, and we've only got you know, a days of figures that we haven't seen yet, show that at best, 
all this extra effort has basically flatlined uh, the turnout. And maybe it would have been worse if there hadn't been the effort. And um, that's one of the risks that uh, we see a complete reactionary wipeout backlash against Wellington and mm. the, um, the pro-cycling anti-car. It's all Jacinda's fault. Yeah. Yeah, and um, there's certainly in the in the provincial cities, there's, a, there's also an anti-three waters thing. Although when you scratch the surface and talk to the mayors and the councillors, it's a lot more nuanced. And actually, in the last two or three weeks, a couple of the big councils have come back on board on three waters and abandoned the councils for democracy process. Interesting. So, mm. So, um, but when you look at the polls, and the latest poll we got this week was from Roy Morgan, which showed Labour below 30%. And uh, I think that that overall national mood of reaction and revolt against... Uh, and exhaustion. I think there's an exhaustion factor here. There's an exhaustion with Jacinda. There's an exhaustion with this, some of these perceived things. Um, however irrational either of those are. Yeah, and... And I, I also detect, and we've maybe discussed this, I, I've sort of felt that the, that the Labour Party itself, or the Labour government, is itself kind of worn out. It's, it's not terribly good at present, presenting anything at the moment, yeah. which could lead us on, if we wanted to, to a story about lobbying and how, how when the revolving door, but continue on the, on the polling for a minute, and then we'll do the revolving door. I think you're right about the exhaustion, and um, the polling is not attractive for Labour in the last... Six months or so, um, the last couple of polls show that National and ACT could govern alone. At the moment, there's no sense of panic, but I think you're right, there is a sense of exhaustion. I was speaking to a couple of people quite close to the government um, who are telling me that uh, one of the reasons that the government seems sort of becalmed and not very... Um, there's not a lot of movement. Uh, is sheer exhaustion after three years of the most extraordinary yeah. things? And also, there's been quite a bit of movement, maybe not in the Cabinet, although there obviously have been some people who have left Cabinet, um, Chris Farfoy being amongst the most prominent, uh, but also a lot of the senior advisors. And well, this is what I was going to want. Have they all gone to PR, just the same as yeah. PR and lobbying, so the same as Chris Farfoy has? Now a couple of and, you know, because they, they're really, they've been really expert during the COVID period. But I have a feeling, as as usual, that they will have buggered off, you know, eighteen to twelve months before the Labour changes, because they're they're much more valuable at this point. Yeah, and there's been a couple of quite prominent lobbying firms set up um, in the last two or three years, which are Labour aligned. Yeah. And, um, Chris Farfoy. I mean, this is extraordinary. Well, should we talk about Chris then? Go for it. Yeah. Okay. So I, I know him a little. I've met him a couple of times. Very nice chat when he was Minister for. Uh, broadcasting, cultural, Jacinda is the senior minister of culture, of course, um, justice and immigration, which was always way too many for any any one person. But I thought the Herald for once, not for once, the Herald did an excellent job this week. A guy called George Block did a really good job of discovering on the internet, on a, 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 an unreleased website from... Um, from an Auckland-based, um, the guy who owns uh, Stanley Street, which is an advertising conglomerate, uh, has set up a, a, a lobbying firm, and Chris Farfoy is going to be running it. And I, you know, as, as nice a chap as Chris Farfoy is, it does highlight this problem, and I wasn't aware of it, Bernard, that there is no limitation on New Zealand politicians or, or civil servants, it would appear, going into these kind of critical lobbying roles. And he will be immensely valuable, um, yeah. you know, broadcasting immigration justice these are pretty critical areas that he've and you know that he's been involved in 
And particularly um, immigration, where there is enormous, um, yeah. frankly, business interests and money to be made by getting um, your message in front of the right person. Uh, and um, broadcasting, and there's a lot happening there and a lot of action as well. In other countries, and you will have um, operated, I think you worked in Washington and London, the whole complex of lobbyists and government is somewhat regulated and that you can well yeah i mean let's yeah so let me, let me just say a couple of things about that one is let me make a small prediction that uh, i would not be at all surprised if um google and meta facebook uh beat a path to chris farfoy's door to um, engage that firm to help them deal with the um i have no information on this but he, he was much more emollient towards the platforms uh, about the um, paying for paying for the um, paying newspapers and news organisations for their content, than than Willie Jackson has proven to be. So that wouldn't surprise me at all. But it is a bit of a myth. This idea that so I, I, I looked up this because one of the crises that hit uh, Boris Johnson, you know, just before he quit, was in fact uh, naked lobbying by a sitting member of parliament. Uh, not fortunately, he had clothes on, but he was he was nakedly lobbying very aggressively. You never came out with these Tories. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And theoretically, there is a two-year uh, limit on uh, uh, politicians and ministers, at least, quitting and joining lobbying firms or joining the firms that they've been regulating. But in fact, what they just have to do is apply to a non-statutory group that is run by a Tory at the moment, and they can get permission to do it and i very much doubt whether that permission is going to be declined same things happens to um to very senior civil servants and the revolving door between particularly the ministry of defense uh, and the NA, or particularly the ministry of defense in my experience is quite phenomenal you know the number of people there who move either to lobbying firms or straight into british aerospace or um lockheed is quite extraordinary and so I, I i don't you know, i think this thing i think new zealand needs to do something i think the, the trouble is, and you know this from Wellington, and you know it's such a small country. You know there is there's a sort of small pool of you know really intelligent fixed fixed in people, and everybody kind of theoretically says they know everything. Um, and I'm just you know that everybody knows if they're just transparent, and I'm just not absolutely sure that's quite right. Yeah, there is what I call. And I'm not being mean to Chris because I you know he is a very nice chap, and I'm sure he's a you know good guy. But I just I, it doesn't it smells a little bit to me that you can do this. Yeah, we, we should have a revolving door policy um, to at least slow it down and, and make it transparent. Because you're right, there is this argument that, um, and the Prime Minister has made this a couple of times. Not, the, not a revolving door, a revolving no, door. Not a revolving door, that's right. There is a, um, an argument that the Prime Minister has made, which is that New Zealand's so small, we all know each other, and all the people who need to know, know about this stuff anyway. So there's no point, it's all very transparent. Well, that's what I call It's actually it. not. No. That's and I think I, that's, and I think that's, you know, good on the Herald for making this just transparent. You know, Chris has come out and said he's not really worried about it and all that. But Chris's connections are only worth anything for the next eighteen months. That's right. Really, you know, obviously there were, you know, certain areas they'll they'll go on, but but his his true value is in what the Labour Party is thinking and what the Labour government is thinking and what the caucus is thinking. Particularly if they do manage to get back into power, um, because often it's that third term when it. That's a good point. Yeah, and, yeah. Of course, I was I was thinking of I was thinking about the inevitability of um, my great friend David David Seymour becoming prime minister <laughs> or, or deputy yeah. prime minister and minister of foreign. Is he, he's just going to be the new a, a new and slightly more irritating, if that were possible, Winston Peters, isn't he? Yes, younger. 
Uh, although I think uh, David Seymour is more likely to uh, try to make changes, and also I think he's more interested in policy and, than politics, which is good. Uh, and um, he's already made a huge difference with his his uh, euthanasia legislation, the way he marshaled and uh, pushed that through until it was yeah, finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, if, if only he wants to so irritating in almost every other respect. <laughs> Yes. So, so the revolving door policy in the United States, they have very strict rules about this. And in my view, we have this Koru Lounge Society that um, is very closely connected to New Zealand. Even, even the secret Koru Lounge. Koru, yeah, the extra yeah. special Koru Lounge. Yeah. Uh, and we have five million people now, um, and our government is doing more than it used to in terms of regulatory changes and spending that have huge influence on how much profit uh, companies make. And there was a time, obviously, in the last couple of years during COVID, when the government effectively handed out $20 billion in cash to businesses. And uh, as we saw this week with the Crown accounts, um, this flowed through into profits. Now, some of that came back to the government in the form of um, taxes, with our relatively high corporate tax rate, 28 cents in the dollar. And I actually worked out this week that... Uh, corporate profits in New Zealand, if you if you um, make the assumption that everyone paid their 28 cents uh, in the dollar of tax, actually rose by $15 billion in the last Excellent. year to $71 billion. But also the, the, the corporate rate, of, the personal rate of tax in New Zealand top rate is 39%, isn't it? It is, for those people who earn over 180000 Yeah, that seems perfectly reasonable. But of course, what doesn't happen in New Zealand is you don't have that um, tax-free period of which I think in the UK at the moment is about seventeen thousand or fifteen thousand pounds. So it is, it is you are taxed on your first dollar. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to be. I, I was interested that, that um, Grant Robertson came came back and sort of didn't rule out uh, tax tax reductions or tax changes in the mid-year. You know, in the mid in the mid to low income area. Yeah, and that's one of the options that the government has to deliver a tax cut but to make sure that it goes to the low to middle income earners mm -hmm. rather than the national version, which is to get rid of the 39 cent tax rate and shift up the thresholds to adjust for inflation, which would mean mm -hmm. that much more than half of that cash, over $3 billion, would go to those people on the highest incomes. And once you take into account the um, promises to repeal bright line, interest deductibility and ring fencing, would mean that uh, landlords, people with multiple properties earning more than $150,000 to $200,000 would see tens of thousands of dollars per year worth of tax benefits. We're not talking Liz Truss, <coughs> Truss style um, £18 million uh, pounds per person in tax rebates, which is what her tax cut would have delivered, which of course was reversed this week, the 45 um, pence mm. one, but not the others. That's what everyone forgets, that um, the other changes are still going through. And uh, I think this is going to be one of the areas of contention in the election debate, assuming National keep their current policies, about how you return money to voters in a way that's fair. Yeah. And I think yeah. one of the problems National will face is uh, when it last uh, did a big rejig of the tax system, which was the big tax switch of 2010-11, when National increased the GST rate and gave the money back in various tax cuts and working for families changes, the express aim when they announced that was that it would be distributionally neutral, i.e. the whole point of it was to ensure that everyone got a fair 
stuck in the sand. Amount of money back. Now you could make some arguments about whether people who spend 100% of their income and who therefore are on the hook for all of the GST increase were unfairly treated relative to... Yeah, well, that is, you know, that is one of the problems with GST, isn't it? That it's, I mean, I, and, and we've discussed before, I was around when it was first brought in and I thought Roger Douglas was a bloody god the way he made it so ruthless and, you know, covering children's clothes and food and everything so that you don't get the ridiculous situation like in England where um, chips are covered but corn, chip, corn chips are not because one, right? one is a snack. Oh, that's an outrageously but, um, unfair playing field. So, so yeah, and don't get me started on Jaffa cakes and biscuits. But <laughs> anyway, um, I thought David Morrick has a really interesting point there. Although I can't ever see it actually happening, which is which is whether Labor would take it take GSC down back down to ten percent and smooth the income tax accordingly to make it all a bit less regressive. Yeah, I mean that is a really good way to ensure that the best, <clears throat> the biggest benefits goes to those people who need it the most. Also, it helps with your inflation problem. Uh, if you want to lop 5% off your inflation rate, that's one way to do it in a hurry. And um, that would be quite a thing if they did that. Yeah, uh, interesting. They would, they would have to um, effectively offset it with either an income or a wealth tax. And again, that's where the point of contention will be. Um, but there is plenty of money in the Crown accounts. And that's the other news that came out this week, was mm. that the uh, government's books are in fantastic shape because the IRD has this... Dyson of an IRD system, which uh, computer system, which hoovers money up uh, uh, from PAYE payers and GST payers and corporate uh, income tax payers, and of course of that. 50 is, it, is it particularly efficient, though? Yeah. So over the last two or three years, um, the the IRD essentially switched out at its 1960s style computing system, which was still running um, with like 75 year old coders who weren't allowed to die, otherwise the system would fall over. Um, replace that with a modern system. So a lot of people are doing their uh, taxes um, completely online. Um, it's much simpler and easier and much more difficult, if it ever was, to avoid. There's, there's nowhere for the money to hide. It goes straight down the back of the couch and sucks it out. Of course, the big exception there is capital gains, not taxed at all, and this is the... The um, effectively the original sin at the heart of Roger Douglas's reforms that mm. he made a broad-based, low-rate, nowhere-to-hide tax system for income and spending, but just forgot to do the capital gains thing, which has skewed and I think screwed the economy ever since, along with the very low investment. Have you ever written anything about that, Bernard? Is there somewhere I can go to read your collected uh, writings about that absolutely. problem? Absolutely. After this, I shall direct you to a big column I did about um, David Cagle and his attempts, because Labour realised they had a problem. David Cagle, there's a name I haven't heard for a very long yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. Yep. Um, um, Labour, in 19, by 1989, realised there was a problem and a hole to fill, but by then they had lost their uh, political support and couldn't get it through. And that is the guts of our problem. Uh, we uh, invented a tax system which was effectively too low for what we needed and invented a way of not investing in our infrastructure so that um, now we've ended up with our housing crisis, um, obscenely expensive housing, a local government that won't do anything because they believe that um, ratepayers won't allow them. And whenever we have a debate about anything in politics, it always comes down to who's going to give me the biggest tax cut. And that's the sort of the problem with having such a strong set of accounts that um, both parties can say, well, it's fiscally and... Uh, in a monetary sense, sensible to start giving some of this money back. Mm. And particularly because by the time people get it at the end of next year, inflation will be well and truly under control. 
because um, the Reserve Bank is cracking down pretty hard. Ah, good segue. I was going to ask you how you were going to segue to the interest rate cut, cut yeah. rise. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Go for it. So uh, up from 3% to 3.5%, so it's ahead of the rest of the world again. And uh, interestingly, in the statement that came with it, the Monetary Policy Committee said they were even considering a 75 mega bazooka uh, increase in the rate. Um, so that surprised a few people. And definitely the Reserve Bank's on track to lift it to probably 4.25, um, some mm. people think. 4. Do you think, Bernard, do you think, or is, what's, the, what, what's the pace now for, the, for, for New yeah. Zealand? So there's one more um, decision to make before the end of the year in uh, late November when they come out with the last monetary policy statement. And most expect they'll do another 50 then, and that would take it to 4%. And then at the beginning of next year, potentially a 25 basis point in the first decision in February. And that would, uh, in theory, be, what well, we've lifted it to quite a high level. Let's wait and see mm -hmm. how it goes. Because when you actually look at the numbers coming through from the rest of the world, inflation is turning down quite quickly. Uh, if you look at um, shipping container costs, you look at input costs in the United States, even, yeah. even the wholesale gas prices in Europe have really dropped sharply in the last couple of weeks because it looks like the Europeans have got their act together, put aside enough gas for the, for the um, winter, and the Norwegians are cranking it up and pumping gas into the system as well. Um, and, you know, Europe's going into recession. And as we saw this week from the IMF warning about a third of the global economy going into recession mm. next year, the inflationary pressures are pretty rapidly being sucked out of the system. Yes, it's, it, it, people have been talking about deflation being the, being the real risk. It's very interesting, Bernard. Also, just briefly on the on the um, uh, UK bank on the Bank of England, did you see their evidence yesterday to the Treasury Select Committee there, pointing out, including with some truly spectacular charts, that it really was the uh, mini budget and the cutting of the cutting of the of the tax to forty of, of the top rate of tax that really nailed the whole bond market and these things, and that it wasn't international, um, you know, general inter international malaise as the, as the Chancellor had described. So I, I think we're going to see some real tension between the Bank of England and, the, and that trust government. But but so so what what do you what do you rate Adrian Orr as at the moment? Because he had a bit of a hard time a couple of months ago. Yeah, he's certainly um, back on track to um, convince people that he's a hawkish inflation, inflation fighter. I think a lot of that noise has gone away simply because if we've had four or five, I think it is, 50 basis point rises in a row and the Reserve Bank is sort of a, has been ahead of the game, ahead of the rest of the world's central banks in moving against inflation. And uh, we'll get some numbers in a couple of weeks on the... Uh, September quarter uh, CPI numbers, which are likely to show a fall back down to six percent, five or six percent or so. And so is there a way? Is there a way Labor can use all of this to reinforce people's sense of confidence in them? Um, what will be interesting, I think, is the decision about whether to extend the fuel levy yeah. price cut at the end of January. There was an interesting little episode a couple of weeks ago when Michael uh, Wood said that um, it was likely that it would not be renewed at the end of January. But he he he, he again this week said, "Oh well, we might keep it going." And that's yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it was fair enough to do it for a limited period, but the the problem it was there to address is not going to go away, especially as we'll discuss towards the end, possibly with the Saudis and the Russians getting together to mandate a two million two million barrel a day reduction. So, I, I was thinking a twenty a twenty five cents per liter 
increase in petrol in January is not going to be welcomed by terribly many people or understood, really. Yeah, just as everyone's driving back from the batch, of course, assuming that yeah. everyone goes to Yeah, but mind you, they'll all be listening to you rather than Hosking by then. <laughs> well, I heard a little bit of gossip this week about um, uh, Hosking and Did you? NZME and, uh, and the likes. And we haven't had a good crack at NZME, RNZ yet, but um, sorry. TV well, it could be RNZ. NZME, RNZ, but yes, it's uh, TVNZ, RNZ. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, um, it seems that the advertisers are not keen to have their brand next to Mr. Hosking. Uh, according to the um, uh, the the sources, the smoke signals I've seen from NZME, mm. and um, how interesting he has got he is now completely <coughs> out of step with the um, the corporate vibe of big the big end of town in New Zealand in terms of environment, sustainability, and um, bikes. green issues. Yeah. That's right, green issues, and uh, that was. Uh, um, that's very clear. So uh, it will be interesting. Robert, welcome. Robert, there you are, you handsome devil. I, I, I've been seeing you tweeting about Brexit and all manner of other things. Oh, well, you know me. <laughs> Good stuff. Great to see you. Well, we see some sun on your face there. That is Yeah, lovely, yeah. I mean, I've been moving around my office to try and avoid the sun because one of my blinds is seizing up and so it's very difficult to avoid but anyway I, it's I a nice problem just, to have robert yeah. if a, just be careful that you don't get any red dots on you on you from you know with <laughs> you, you don't want to you don't want to, don't want to become, become the next victim of a an Anne marie brady type assassination uh, yeah, yeah no I, I i'd have a difficulty falling out the window because the university have taken the precaution of ma- making sure the window o- only opens about three inches yeah knowing how stressful it is for you guys yeah that's right. Wonderful Any excuse will be jumping out the window. Yeah, wonderful to see you, Robert. And um, plenty Good to see you guys. Pl- plenty of uh, action this week in Ukraine, where uh, it seems that, that the Ukrainians are just keep on th- thrusting through, and uh, the Russians are on the run. Tell us what you what you know from the last few days. Well, it does seem uh, as if there at the moment the Ukrainians really do have the bit between their teeth militarily. And um, we've seen considerable progress in the south, um, um, advances around Kherson, and as we've discussed before, a substantial number of troops, of Russian troops, have been cut off. Um, estimates vary, but somewhere between ten and 15,000 wow. um, troops are cut off uh, within... Person. And uh, in addition, uh, we've seen a lot of progress um, in the Kharkiv region in the northeast of the country. So, yeah, and uh, in the last week alone, uh, according to one pretty reliable report, um, about 4,000 square kilometres of additional territory has been uh, liberated from uh, Russian control. So, and of course, they're making some grim discoveries. Um, in the areas where, where the Russians have been uh, pushed back. Um, but, yes, um, Mr. Putin's now facing... Uh, there's a tremendous tension between his proclamation or his announcement about annexing those four regions and the fact that the Ukrainians are just nibbling away at them all the time. Yeah, I, and, saw, I, I saw that described as an, uh, an angry taxi driver speech. Well, um it, I, what's very interesting, Peter, is to see, and you've probably seen it, the demoralisation of the Putin cheerleaders on the, yeah. the Russian TV, which is quite stark. 
And, yes, um, although some of them, of course, are, you know, are more extreme than, than he is. Unless it's quite, the Institute for the Study of War, which I'm sure you look at, uh, has published a really interesting document about the state of the information war in Russia. And yeah. I think the, the Kremlin today warned state media to possibly start actually being a little more serious in their in their coverage of the Ukraine of of the of the of the risks of the campaign, so as not to paper over all the cracks so much. But you know, in between the sort of obligatory support for the boss, there's been some pretty hard hitting mm. things. For example, one Russian, a member of the Russian Duma, the Russian Parliament, said that you know the problem is that there's lying from top to bottom, and um, this has contributed to what's been disappointing results in Ukraine. So, it, it, I think I, the other thing was I had a chance to watch uh, Mr. Putin's speech where he announced partial mobilization um well over a week ago but it was interesting watching the audience and they looked very stony face mm. and they they applauded all you know the right moments but it, I, I thought that this was not um a buoyant looking audience some of them looked quite stony faced and you know uh how should i put it pretty disgruntled i think reading between the lines yeah, it's 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 also one of those things where you have to applaud. It's like Stalin, where you know the person who stops applauding first is the first one to go out to the gulag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's unfortunately was the case in Stalin's times. So but somebody, um, Glenn, has asked us on the on the what your view is about about Putin and and the nuclear threat. I I, I devoted most of my spin-off thing to that this week to try and sort of balance out what, what the, the different views are. And I had Elliot Cohen, the former uh, State Department um, official, saying it was, it was all bluff and it wouldn't happen. But I see Joe Biden has just talked about Armageddon. So, you know, Armageddon out of here. This is not looking good. Yeah. I, mean- uh, I'm, I, I tend to veer in the direction of Elliot Cohen. And the reason why is because the decision to announce uh, partial mobilisation was, in my view, um, an announcement that any use of nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons was being postponed. And he's certainly giving mobilization a try. That means, although he hasn't ruled out the use of tactical nuclear weapons, he is seeking, through conventional means, to try to bolster his efforts in eastern Ukraine. Mm. Um, uh, I also think that Mr. Putin he's convinced the West is failing even when he's failing himself. So uh, the, the, I think he still has this cynical view that if he makes enough threats, uh, a lot of people in the West will collapse. Um, and yeah, I, I, I take the view that Ukraine must try to regain its territory, whatever Mr. Putin says. He, you know, at the end of the day, I think, as I've said to you before, it, what, I think it is nuclear saber rattling. It's designed to weaken Western support for Ukraine, and I don't think the West can allow itself on a que- key issue of international law, where the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of a state has been blatantly infringed. It can't sort of say, "Oh well, the people we're infringing it are threatening to do something that we may not like in the course of reversing the consequences mm-hmm. of this aggression." So, I, I think you know. The, the Ukrainians don't seem to be deterred by it. They're taking it seriously, and I think we should take it seriously. But um, I, I think it's also a sign that Mr. Putin's position within Russia is weakening the fact he's having to make such threats. And 
And on that point of uh, solidarity in the West and determination to see Ukraine look to take back all its territory, potentially including Crimea, interesting to see Elon Musk come out, he's a character, <laughs> come out and uh, put up this cheeky tweet saying, uh, how about a negotiated peace, guys? Give the Russians what they want and we can all go back to normal. And the, the Ukrainians, who are just genius on social media, um, just made a fool of Elon Musk. And it, what it showed me is that, um, you know, even those uh, people who are, you know, hoping for this to end with a negotiated settlement get shouted down pretty quickly these days by the officials who, you know, where perhaps six months ago they might have been keen, keener to think about yeah. negotiation. Now they're going, right, the Russians are on the run, Putin's in trouble, um, uh, we just need to keep piling the uh, rockets and the um, uh, the artillery in there, and the Ukraines are going to do the job for all of us and push it right back to the original. Yeah, process. I also wanted to. So it was also interesting. Elon came back. Elon, my mate, Elon came back and said, "But I've, I've, I've given you know, I've, I've given the, the." He was speaking to not not Sakharov to the former te- former chess player, uh, Russian chess player Kasparov, Kasparov, and saying, "What the fuck have you done, Kasparov? You know, you've done nothing. I've sent eighty million. I've, I've you know sent eighty million dollars worth of Starlink." Um, Starlink equipment to Ukraine. Of course, he has, so that's that's great. But it, the the questions that that Musk was asking were so in line with the Russian viewpoint oh, no. that you know it was a gift. It well, the Russian media had been making yeah. great play with it and uh, um, quoting him extensively. They, I think, they've given up on Trump at the moment. They're looking. Um, Elon Musk is their new hero. Although, yeah, although can I just did you, did you see though, Robert? And this is a slight, tiny, tiny, tiny digression. When we think, I mean, apart because the other digression would be to talk about Elon Musk now agreeing to to buy Twitter or going to back up for fifty four dollars twenty a share. But the launch this week of the NASA NASA crewed capsule to the on a, on a SpaceX rocket to the um, uh, to the International Space Station, including the landing on a um, barge of the main stage called, and the, and the barge is called Just Follow the Instructions. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, and I am amazed how Musk can manage to spend $50 billion buying Twitter and still engage in a Twitter fight with them, try and intervene in the, in the Ukraine crisis, launch, you know, the most extraordinary rocket that's ever been launched. I mean, it is just flabbergasting to me. Well, I suppose... Uh... Uh, some people might answer that's because he's got eleven children and he's 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 an absentee father or something like that. I mean, you know, he hasn't he's not doesn't seem to be weighed down with family responsibilities and he's clearly a workaholic. Which you know, uh, to be fair to him, uh, he was one of the first people to respond to Ukraine's plight by g- getting that Starlink system in, and, and, and that, that is, did apparently yeah. make um, a huge difference. Yeah, no, it's been a, um, a, a and uh, I think he may be well intentioned, but. You know, I, I think he sort of parachuted into the situation without fully taking on board what Ukraine has experienced. $150 billion worth of infrastructure damage, been receiving end of, you know, what's been purported to be war crimes. And the Ukrainians are tasting success in their efforts to eject invaders. So um, I, I think he's, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Peter. I think had he made that suggestion within about the first month, it would have had a lot more traction. But I think that the moment has passed uh, for diplomacy. And, you know, President Zelensky was uh, absolutely explicit. He said, I think two or three days ago, 
um, he said he put it in writing. He said that uh, they will negotiate with Russian leaders other than President Putin. There'll be no negotiations with him mm. Mm. Yeah, so because they don't regard which is, him as which is itself a negotiating position. To the Ukrainian government, he's lied about everything. And including his pledge a few days before the Ukrainian invasion that he would not engage in a full-scale invasion of the country. So, uh, yeah. I, I just um, wonder, too, that the uh, support behind Ukraine, the solidarity in Europe and with the United States seems stronger than ever, even though the pressure has come on from another source this week with Saudi Arabia uh, essentially yes. thumbing its nose at the United States, joining up with Russia and saying, right, let's cut oil supplies by 2 million barrels a day, 2%, to get that price back up towards $100 mm. US mm. a barrel again. And even when that happened, interestingly, there wasn't a huge jump in the oil price because, remember, the Americans can respond by putting more oil uh, on, into the market from their strategic oil reserve and also yeah. cranking up their own supplies. And the Europeans, too, seem to have... Um, found a way to get through the winter they've got enough gas supplies it well we don't know yet do we though but but you know i mean a little a little icy snap and they'll have transfer warning sending out <laughs> urgent urgent messages to them yeah but it, it it is interesting that um the resolve seems fairly strong in the west what did you make by the way of the, the saudi arabian move i i thought it was extraordinary but not a complete surprise because you know, it seems to me that the Biden administration's two key Middle Eastern allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel, have badly let down the administration with respect to the administration's position on Ukraine. Mm. I mean, you know, Israel has, on a number of occasions, turned down President Zelensky flat when he's requested something they desperately need, which is an anti-aircraft, um, anti-missile system, a defensive system to intercept, you know, missiles from Russia. And uh, the Israelis do not want to upset Mr. Putin by providing it. They want him apparently to have unfettered use of these long-range missiles. So um, the second thing was that, yeah, Saudi Arabia, its actions by cutting back on the production, oil production, do have the potential. I know I fully take on board what you've just said, Bernard. It hasn't made much difference so far, but it, it certainly has the potential to boost um, Putin's the Putin regime's earnings from um, or, uh, its petroleum products. So, in a sense, that that's not you know that's sort of um, undermining the impact of international sanctions to some degree. So, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, if I, I I think Mr. Biden maybe needs to remind his allies how well Saudi Arabia depends a lot on the United States for its security. And yeah. the second thing is Israel gets four billion dollars every year. Up front at the beginning of each fiscal year. Yeah. And, well, did, you, um, did you notice, um, yeah. Robert? The um, you know the the Washout White House came out and said the president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision by OPEC. And I think you know this is just such a fuck you from MBS to to um, to Biden after that. Do you remember the you know the, the little the little fist bump and everything in Saudi Arabia? And then they then they made a nominal one hundred thousand barrels a day increase. You know, which was which was also a very nice little passive aggressive. Yeah, I think America, you know, in a sense, in both cases, this is the tail wagging the dog in Saudi-U.S. relations and in terms of U.S.-Israeli mm -hmm. relations. And it's up to the United States to have a good look at this. But of course, I take it you're not going to Saudi Arabia for any conferences like next recently. Sorry, you're not going to Saudi Arabia soon for any conferences. 
you'll get your tail chopped off if you're not careful, Robert. <laughs> well, that's true. But I mean, uh, I, 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 you, you can't go around, you know, gagging yourself. Academics, believe you or not, are supposed to speak truth to power. Because, yeah. so, you know, occasionally we, we make enemies. Yeah, no, I, um, it's, it is interesting because if Putin goes down and Russia is um, loses... Uh, that could de- de- or change the balance in the Middle East, given Russia's um, big involvement in the Syrian situation. You do have to wonder if Putin goes and he pulls all his troops and uh, equipment out of Syria, whether that um, kicks off again. And and also, you know, the, the Russians have been meddling around there, mating up with the Iranians. So... Uh, there's stuff on the move here, and you're right. The Saudi Arabians have to be, and the Israelis have to be careful not to um, uh, be too too in your face with the Americans. Well, the interesting thing is, Bernard. I'm wondering if the Israelis and the Saudis, for perhaps different reasons, both would prefer Mr. Putin to be around for a while, mm. and they fear regime change mm. in Moscow. And um, because one thing, if 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 Mr. Putin goes, that means he's probably lost. In Ukraine, and if that if that's happened, uh, President Zelensky, who's made no secret about this, will be leading his charge to reform the UN Security Council, and he may just mm. get quite substantial support, not least from our country. Yeah. And that um, that may be bad news for countries which have benefited from the use of the veto in their favour. But we'll just I have think, to wait I think and we see need um, Jacinda and Guterres to go to to go to Moscow and. Um, and Kiev and um, Ankara and sort this out for us. Well, uh, talking about interesting situations in the Middle East, I bet you guys have been following the situation in Iran. Yes. It's yes. extraordinary. And, and, and I think he's very serious for the regime. Is there any chance that um, it, it might actually um, topple the regime this time? Because there's been a couple of outbursts like yeah. this which have been squashed. Well, there was the, right. green, the, green yeah. the attempted yeah. Green Revolution, yeah. Uh, 2009, and yeah. when there was that fraudulent election, and there was then the 2019, there was widespread protests about the economic uh, situation in Iran. I think 1,500 people were killed in the protests. What's interesting, though, and what's distinctive about this, that it's led by women. And mm. I don't know if you've been following the situation. They showed extraordinary courage and defiance. I, I don't know if you saw it on the social media, but... Mm. An official who's closely linked to the regime, the theocratic regime, went to a girl's high school and they put on masks and told him to get chanted, get lost. And they said, death to the dictator. This is not just young women doing this. The young men are involved as well. And the thing we have to take into account here, which is, this is why I think it's serious for the regime. 60% of a popular, of the 80 million people that populate Iran are 30 or under. Mm. So we may be seeing a real backlash to a regime that's been in power for 60 years and people are dissatisfied on a number of fronts. Yeah, well, I mean, the prospects are for you, if you're a, if you're a young person in um, Iran, the prospects are not great for, for you know, travel, work, freedom. It was very interesting that, you know, that particular dictator also talked about this whole being, thing being a conspiracy between the great Satan and the little Satan. Oh, yes, uh, Israel and uh, the United States, mm. the usual... <laughs> the usual, usual culprits. Yeah. Uh, as, as a hardline newspaper pointed out in Tehran, interestingly taking on the regime saying that 
um, they don't doubt that the United States and Israel may be pleased by this situation, but they, the regime shouldn't fool itself that they can mobilize those sort of numbers with, with uh, on purely foreign motivated grounds that there were, you know, there were real grievances here. And um, let me ask so you opinion on something else, uh, please, please, Robert. I mean, the I am still incredibly concerned about those the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. Oh, yes. uh, I noticed Sweden overnight uh, and Denmark have said they can confirm it was sabotage, and they think they know how it was done now. But we're still not any closer to knowing exactly who, you know, beyond suspecting who it was done. And I, I noticed when my spin-off thing this week went out that um, somebody came back and sent me a um, video of a Republican senator who's a former military person. And it was a video put up by something called the Schiller Institute, which seems to be a rather dodgy um, group. But, you know, he's not the, he's not alone amongst U.S. politicians and media people saying that the U.S., had a much greater motive to do this than Russia. Now, I, I'm not convinced by that, but mm. why do you think we don't know? I don't know. I was hoping we'd have some information by now. I mean, some pretty independently verifiable information, mm. but we haven't yet got that. And who, someone does know, but they're keeping it clo closed. You know. I can't imagine Jens Stoltenberg from NATO would be saying what he's saying without being That's sure what I that think it wasn't. as well, but I mean... It, he is heading an organization in which the United States is extremely influential and the yeah. major funder. So I, um, I, I do wonder yeah. whether um, particularly the, the Danes and the Swedes, who are pretty diligent about their uh, work, mm. and also the Swedes in particular, need the approval of America to get into NATO. They're not mm. quite there yet would um, just uh, cross their T's and dot their I's and make sure the boss is ready <laughs> before they put it out. So that will yeah. be interesting. Robert, I, don't, I mean, I don't think the administration, if they're not involved, um, you know, if they're not involved, why would they want to keep the information they have available? They made information available about the Russian myth. Yes, that's, that's my feeling too, yeah. Um, I'm just a bit... Doesn't mean I'm right, yeah, of course. It doesn't seem... Quite right, and I, I noticed that the the statement from um, Dmitry Peskov, the Putin's press uh, spokesperson, said that Russia must be involved in any independent mm. investigations into this, which was quite a forceful statement to make. Um, mind you, of course, the old joke in Moscow is until they deny something, that, that that's a form of confirmation. But yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, you know, we just have to wait and see. It's very frustrating. Um, but it's interesting that the Swedes and is it the Danish, the Denmark, uh, yeah. uh, the Danish have said Dan. they are pretty clear on what happened. Mm -hmm. Be interesting to see. Robert, thank you so much for coming on to Very the welcome. show again. Lovely to see that sun in Dunedin. It's even, yeah, even it's in Wellington. Unbelievable. I'm Had snow yesterday. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, next, next time it's a regulation zip up um, icebreaker for you too. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Great. What do we do? Is it that? I can't. I, don't, I can't do the Vulcan thing. But no, whatever it is, no, yeah. no. that was probably just a Serbian or a Croatian or, or fascist maybe, symbol. Maybe you've just don't worry, I'll be on the receiving end quite a few gestures. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. Or, or anyway, maybe, have a good weekend, guys. Thank you very much. Bye, Robert. Yes. Bye. Or maybe uh, Peter, you've just uh, joined um, the the Comancheros. Um, ah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Well, they've got all the nice cars. Yeah. We've got a, a couple of questions just to end on. Uh, John um, is asking the question about where the New Zealand dollar is going vis-a-vis uh, -vis the US dollar over the next six months. Thanks, uh, John. Um, 
my reluctance to forecast anything to do with the currency is because there's just so many variables on both sides. But at the moment, it really depends on what the New Zealand uh, Reserve Bank does with interest rates relative to the Fed. And really, it's a call about what, how high you think the Fed is going to push interest rates. And also, whether the signs of um, financial distress that are now coming out of the British bond market and the US bond market and uh, Credit Suisse uh, forced the Fed's hand to choose financial stability over monetary policy. Oh, excuse me, Bernard, the, the chief executive of Credit Suisse says, it says everything's tickety-boo. Tick, tickety-boo, yes. Yeah. Um, for him to come, have to come out and say that is not mm. tickety-boo at all. But, but you're right. Um, there is uh, lots of... Um, Noise Did you see they're selling their last their last trophy asset, a big hotel in um, Zurich? Really? Wow. Mm. Yeah. No, I've always wondered about these Swiss banks and how they could ever get into trouble because there's so much money that gets pumped into Switzerland from all sorts of places, desperate to be hidden away from all sorts of uh, people. One of the good things in the last decade or so is that the Swiss have finally started cooperating mm. with international authorities on sharing um, tax information. And the likes of the Panama Papers and the various other uh, data drops. In fact, there's been some out of Switzerland as well. I'm sure have helped um, mm. help that. Um, and uh, so the, the 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 answer to your question, John, is that uh, I don't know, <laughs> and I wouldn't I wouldn't guess other than to say, uh, while the U.S. dollar is so strong because the Fed is on a, a rate hiking spree that's most likely to keep our currency weak, uh, particularly if, and this is my view, that um, our inflation means that the, that the Reserve Bank stops just after it gets over 4%. Uh, however, I'm also of the view that um, the Fed will either have to intervene to bail out um, some people in the market at some point or uh, uh, not have to worry so much about inflation because it's coming off the boil pretty quickly. So... We'll see how that uh, that goes. Just before we go, Peter, um, we didn't get around to the key issue of the Television New Zealand Radio New Zealand merger. This week we had enormous numbers of high-powered, um, detailed submissions to the select committee considering the bill to merge RNZ and TVNZ. And you wrote a comment piece too for Business Desk on this. What's your view on... Uh, I did, on I did write that, Bernard. I'll, I'll put it up here. It'll probably be closed to most people, I fear. But... Um, well, I, I thought the so so my piece was about what I consider to be or what you know prima facie is political interference from Willie Jackson, who's been very critical, particularly of Simon Power, the new chief executive of TVNZ, saying basically get with the program. But Simon uh, and various other members, including a, a think tank that I'm part of, have submitted to the select committee that the um, TVNZ uh, RNZ merged entity needs to be. Uh, a crown-owned corporation, not a, a crown entity. And that's what they are at the moment. And they, that explicitly protects them from ministerial interference, whereas the um, the, the, the concept that's being proposed uh, really does subject them to interference. And the minister is already interfering, it would appear to me. Um, but so this week, it was really the Sinead Boucher, my former boss or, or customer at uh, Stuff, who's both the owner and the chief executive of Stuff, really focused, and they've done a very good job on this, including their, their chief counsel, 
on the competitive risk and on the need for this entity to be severely closely regulated by the by the by the competition commission which it isn't really at the moment or is unlikely to be uh and that it really particularly given this kind of hybrid public interest public public fund more mix of public funding plus commercial funding that you know tvnz is the uh biggest game in town in terms of um advertising i i strongly believe that that commercial uh ethos will be swept right through this new entity um and that and that far from things being kept uh uh advertising free that things that we see at the moment um particularly online that are advertising free will become supported by advertising in my opinion but that's but but you know Sinead was talking about that she was talking about the, the the risk of competition the herald was talking in very very similar terms and simon powell the chief executive of tv and said really made these points particularly around um uh around the you know the need to shield editorial and uh and the entire business really from political independence and i, don't, I just think it's I, i'm not sure that this legislation is going to get through in its current form or should uh and and it's also a bit of a dog's breakfast but the, the, one of the other points that um stuff made in its in its evidence which i think is also valid is that public interest journalism does not necessarily have to be done or completely done by a public a public entity you know stuff does public interest journalism the herald does public interest journalism um you know there's there's, there's a lot of a lot of work that can be done by the private sector as well or the commercial sector as well and um from a purely uh, personal and uh um very uh, local point of view, uh, uh, the Kaka is in effect uh, another attempt to try and solve a public interest journalism problem, but doing it with the support of subscribers and members of the public making uh, uh, contributions, rather than uh, going through a public fund or doing it in a in an advertising. That's case. true. That's true. But I, I also think that, you know again one of the points that that uh, several people have made, and I certainly made. In that in that business desk piece is that the resources many of the resources for public interest journalism are going to be sucked out of or and sorry not just public interest journalism also entertainment are going to be sucked out of New Zealand on air, which is going to be filleted like a snapper, and uh, left as a you know as a bit of a husk and and I don't think that's necessarily right because it's it's um, you know, to me, it is a really effective mechanism for the delivery of some public interest things. But should we run that video? Ah, Let yes. everybody go with that video. Yes. Better than watching the news. Exactly. Indeed. Um, it's time for our skateboarding dog. And in this case... It we, is a dog. It is a dog. And it is a dog in a backpack. Let me just go through the process of sharing the screen here. I find it absolutely beguiling. And so thank you, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll let you go with this lovely image. See you, Bernard. Catch you later.